This is by far one of my most favorite Sundays of the year. I am going to take this moment now to, first of all, congratulate our graduates, each and every one of you. If you're here, would you stand just so everybody can see you? If you're here, if you're able. I got one right there. All of them right there. Perfect. Thank you, guys. Congratulations. I have gifts for you down here in the front as the kids are on their way out. I'll have you come up here and grab those at the same time. And by the way, speaking of, I'm going to release all of our future graduates, our K through fifth grade, to head out those doors right over there. So if you guys head out that way, and my graduates, if you don't mind coming up here and grabbing one of these, we have some books for you because we know that you love reading books. And uh, there's Tozer, there is Spurgeon, and there is also Geisler in there. So you're going to enjoy those books. If you don't take one, I'm going to enjoy those books, so it should be good. As they're heading out, I'm going to have the rest of you guys flip to Ephesians chapter 3 for me today. We're going to be in our last section of Ephesians chapter 3, and we're in our last section of Made Worthy. Made Worthy is our um, whole idea that we've been grasping onto for the first three chapters of Ephesians. And in those first three chapters of Ephesians, basically what we've had is we've had the idea of all the riches that God has given to us to make us who he wants us to be. And as we are here, we're going to be looking at this for the last time. In two weeks, because next week we're at the park, we will be transitioning to walkworthy, the application of being made worthy. And so as we are looking at Ephesians chapter 3, and hopefully you've had a chance to do that, we're going to be in verses 14 through 21. And 14 through 21 is a prayer. And if you remember the last couple of weeks in Ephesians chapter 3, it has been an amazing ADD rabbit trail from Paul about the mysteries of Christ that have been revealed to him that he is now passing on to us. And you may recall, a couple of weeks ago, he actually started out verse 1 of chapter 3 with these words, for this reason. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner for Christ, on behalf of you Gentiles. Paul was getting ready to pray at that point. But then he takes a left turn at Albuquerque, and he dives into, and those of you who know Looney Tunes know what I'm talking about, he dives into that mystery that was revealed to him. Well, in verse 14, where we pick up today, he comes back on track to his original thought. And as he's going to be praying, he's praying for the followers of Christ. And what his prayer is, is this. It's praying that they experience who God is and grow more in him and grow closer to him. It's not a coincidence that today is the day that we are honoring our graduates and this is the passage as well. I didn't say, hey, we need to make sure that Ephesians 3, 14 through 21 is on graduation Sunday. It just happened to work out that way. But I will tell you, this is not just for the graduates. It's this prayer to go out into this world. It's a prayer for each and every one of us because when we go out these doors over here, we're heading into our mission field. And we have that prayer in front of us. So let's read it together. Normally be on the screens, but again, I apologize for our technical difficulties this morning. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21 it says, for this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. I pray that he may grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power in your inner being through his spirit, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, 
may be able to comprehend with all of the saints what is the length and width, height and depth of God's love and to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that is work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. I get chills just reading that. I don't know about you, but to think that, that Paul was praying not just for the Ephesian church, but praying for us, these things, that we be strengthened in our inner being so that we could be full of who God is. The fullness of God would reside in us. As we read this passage, we have to remember this is the second prayer that Paul actually says to the book or to the letter in Ephesians. If you remember back, which most of us probably don't because I actually have to look it up. Thank God for YouTube. The last Sunday of March was a prayer for spiritual understanding. And that was found in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. In that prayer, we saw Paul's desire for the Ephesian church, for, for the church, to know God more intimately. He, he wanted them to know him on a more intimate, personal basis, that they might know the hope of his calling, that they might know the riches of his glory, that they might know the surpassing greatness excuse me, of his power. The surpassing greatness of his power towards those who believe. Paul, Paul wanted the Ephesians, as well as us, to know what is ours in Christ Jesus because of Christ Jesus. He, he wanted us to know these things. In chapter two, you actually may remember that Paul doesn't just pray that in, in chapter one, but he's beginning to expand on it, these things that we have in Christ Jesus because of Christ Jesus. He begins to expand on it, and he says things like, we have life in Christ. Because at one point in time, we are dead in our sin. We've been saved by grace. We have been raised and seated with Christ, created in Christ Jesus for good works. You have peace with God because of Christ. Co-heirs with being God's church, his new community. Unity in that church and the implications of that unity go far beyond the mortal realm. These are all the things that Paul's laying out in chapter two. He said, you've been given an identity. You've been given a purpose. A purpose. The riches we've been given, as a matter of fact, he said, are immeasurable. Unfathomable. And Paul prayed in his first prayer for us to be enlightened, that our minds would literally be blown. You know that blown emoji? That was supposed to be on the screen. It's not. So look at your own screens. You're like, oh, there it is. That's what I'm talking about. That our minds would be blown about who Jesus is and what he has done for us and in us that we could be who we are. Then in his second prayer, that's where we find ourselves. It's a point of transition in the letter, the same reason why we're transitioning from what are made worthy to walk worthy. We're going from who we are and whose we are, and because of that, what we are supposed to do is respond. So that transition of made worthy by Christ, of all the riches we've been given, now is apply it. Apply it to your daily lives. Paul is actually praying that we move from an intellectual head knowledge of all of this to affect us emotionally in our heart to not just affect us emotionally in our heart, but actually inspire our feet to move. So you might call it a head knowledge, a heart knowledge, and a foot knowledge. And that's the progression that he's praying for, for us in that. 
He says, I pray you apply that head knowledge and live it out. Well, why would he pray that? Well, simply this. We must have God's power to do God's will. We must have God's power to do God's will because we cannot do it on our own. That's why he starts, or maybe restarts, says this again, for this reason. For this reason. He said it in verse 1, now he's saying it again in verse 14. He says, for this reason, for all the truths I, Paul, have talked about in this letter so far. Remember, this is one solid letter. This isn't chapters and verses then. They had one person reading it. So it says, for this reason, all the things that I've listed out there, because of who God is, because of who God's made us to be in Christ, because God has established the church that is made up of his people, and because of everything else, for this reason, I kneel before the Father. I kneel before the Father. And I'll tell you, just this part of this passage is something we could unpack for, for multiple sermons. So I'm going to do my best to keep it brief. Because Paul's first prayer, really the first two chapters laid out, it's not because of us. Everything we have is because of who God is. It's all because of God. None of it is my doing. I was dead. I couldn't bring myself back to life. I lived in rebellion. I would not repent. I was the one who was not good. God was the one who is good. This is what he's trying to lay out. It's because God's amazing grace that I've been adopted into his family and that I get to call him Father. I get to call the creator of the universe Father. And we should recognize that and we should respond appropriately. So in Paul's second prayer, you see him approach the throne of grace in humility, in reverence to who God is. He he approaches him, uh, as we prayed on Thursday night, that in a way to, to realize that the God of the universe wants us in his presence. Not just allows us into his presence, but wants us in his presence. Just stop and think about that for a second. Again, mind blown. Paul comes before God in prayer and he kneels in humble gratitude before the king of kings. I mean, he's just finished focusing on the grace of God, that amazing grace, and because of it, he kneels. And now there's some different church groups who will take this and say, this is how you have to pray. You have to kneel. If you're going to pray, you're going to get down on your knees. That is not what Paul is doing here. As a matter of fact, it was uncommon for a Jew to get down on his knees. He actually stood with his arms lifted high, as that song said. That's how the normal prayer would take place. So what is Paul doing? Paul is laying out really three different things that his posture will represent. He first kneels, as we've already said, in gratitude. In gratitude. Paul is grateful because, again, it's all God. It is all God. We live in this entitled world, guys, and we think that we deserve something. Can I just tell you something? There's an old movie. I won't tell you which one it's from, but in it, the quote is this. You'll get nothing, and you will like it. If you know what movie that is, shame on you. The thing is, is this. We think we deserve something, but we deserve nothing. We deserve death. We deserve separation from God. We come before God in gratitude because he is the one who instigated us to come to him. He's the one that took the initiative to call sinners to himself and make new people groups out of them, or a new people group out of them, to bring them into his family 
that he created in the first place. He gave us breath. And he still gives us breath. He defines and determines our very existence. Can I ask you a question? Are you grateful for that? Did you wake up this morning going, hey, I'm still alive. What a beautiful thing. Because the truth of the matter is we should. Some of us more than others. But the truth of the matter is we should be grateful because God can take that away. Let me ask you another question. What is prayer to you? What is prayer to you? When you come to God in prayer, what is it that you are doing? See, for most people, prayer is a form of getting. It's like God's this big genie in the sky, and if I rub him just right, he's going to give me what I want. Or he's a giant pinata. If I swing hard enough and go big enough, something's going to fall out that I want. That's the mentality we, we, we take into prayer. But let me tell you this about prayer. From back in the beginning of this year, we talked about why, and we talked about why prayer the reason why we pray is first and foremost for worship. We come to him in gratitude. We come to him because we are grateful. When was the last time we bowed in humble gratitude to God to just give him thanks? Psalm 95. Psalm 95 tells us these words. And if you've been doing the Bible recap, I know some of you have been doing that for your um, through the Bible uh, reading for the year. Tomorrow, Psalm 95. Just happened to be coincidence. This is what it says. Come, let us shout joyfully to the Lord. Shout triumphantly to the rock of our salvation. Let's enter his presence with thanksgiving. Let's shout triumphantly to him in song. For the Lord is a great God, a great king above all gods. The depths of the earth are in his hands, and the mountain peaks are, in, are his. The sea is his, he made it. His hands form the dry land. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us, you know what the word is? Kneel before the Lord, our God, our maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the sheep under his, uh, under his care. We kneel in gratitude for who he is and what he's done and what he continues to do in us. We also kneel in desperation. In desperation, when we realize that we are approaching the only one who can act on our behalf, we realize that we are helpless. We have not just a sense of helplessness, we are helpless. Think about how many times either you or someone you know got terrible, terrible news. And what is their immediate reaction? To fall to their knees and cry out to God, whether they're a Christian or not. I've seen it multiple times in multiple different ways that we cry out in desperation because we realize we have zero power to do anything. And in that desperation, you're like, well, wait a second, why would Paul be crying out in desperation? Why would he be doing that here? Well, it's because he loves the church. And he knows that these Ephesians and us need something that only can come from God. You know what that is? Spiritual power. Spiritual power power. I don't want to get ahead of myself and jump up to verse 16, but if you want to jump to verse 16 real quick, look what he says. Paul says, I pray that he may grant you to be strengthened. Paul knew that God's power was God's gift and that we need it. And the, the desperate petition was, please God, give it to us. And we'll talk more about that here in just a minute when we do get to verse 16. But before we get there, let me ask you this. When you come to God, are you desperate for him? 
Now, those of you who've been in church for a while may remember a song by Michael W. Smith that said, you are the air I breathe. You're everything to me. As a matter of fact, he says, and I'm desperate for you. This is my daily bread. The very word spoken to me, and I'm lost without you. Are we desperate? Is that us? Do we realize that he is our everything? Do we hold on to that? That we are helpless and powerless without God's intervention in our lives? It reminds me of an illustration back from my youth pastor days. Back when they had a company called Youth Specialties. I asked Bruce if he'd ever heard of him. He's like, no. So I've obviously been doing this a little longer apparently. I thought we were about the same. I, I apologize. But it's before they had unlimited web pages and before they had Google Images and PNGs, they had these clip art books. You actually had to Xerox, if anybody knows what that means. Had to Xerox, you cut it out, you paste it with translucent tape so it didn't show through, and that's how you made your calendars and sent them out. But they also had illustration books. And in those illustration books, again, you couldn't just go to the internet and find illustrations. You had to go look and read it and then type it out. There's one called Palm Monday. And it's one that I still remember. And I got to thinking about this. It's like 30 years old. So the fact that my mind still remembers this, hopefully it sticks with you as long as well. That's what it said. The donkey awakened, his mind still savoring the afterglow of the most exciting day of his life. Never before had he felt such a rush of pleasure and pride. He walked into town and found a group of people by the well. I'll show myself to him, he thought, but they didn't notice him. They went on drawing their water and paid him no mind. Throw your garments down, he said crossly. Don't you know who I am? They just looked at him in amazement. Someone actually slapped him across the tail and ordered him to move. Miserable heathens, he muttered to himself. I'll just go to the market where the good people are. They will remember me. But the same thing happened. No one paid any attention to the donkey as he strutted down Main Street in front of the marketplace. The palm branches, where are the palm branches, he shouted. Yesterday, you threw palm branches. Hurt and confused, the donkey returned home to his mother. Foolish child, she said gently. Don't you realize that without Jesus, you're just an ordinary donkey? Here's what we need to take from that. Just like the donkey who carried Jesus in Jerusalem, we are most fulfilled when we are in service to Jesus Christ. Without him, all of our best efforts are like, as Isaiah says, filthy rags. And the amount, they amount to nothing. When we lift up Christ, however, we are no longer ordinary people, but key players in God's plan to redeem the world. In John 15, Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. We are desperate. And that's a humble truth that should continue to humble us and make us even more desperate. But there's something else it should do. It should actually encourage us. You're like, well, wait a second. Well, because while apart, apart from him, we can do nothing. When we are abiding him and we are abiding in his power, we can do whatever he's called us to do. As a matter of fact, many times as Philippians 4.13 has been misquoted and misdone mis, uh, when it's put on an athlete's shoes, when it says, the strength, through Jesus Christ, I can do all things who strengthens me. It's not talking about playing basketball. You know what it's talking about? The things he's called you to. That in that power, that inner being, that strength that we're supposed to get, that's what he's talking about. That's what we can do. So if you remember back to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 12, that we talked about last week, we, those who are in Christ because of Christ, 
we can actually approach God with boldness and confidence. Because we can come to him in prayer in that way. And you know what? He says, you're loved by God, and he wants his children in his presence. Pastor Tim Keller, some of you may know who that is, probably one of our most popular, famous, modern-day theologians passed away this week of uh, a fight for three years with pancreatic cancer. He's a pastor in New York. And this week, uh, the Gospel Coalition, which is a website that he uh, helped found, actually put up 50 of his most famous quotes. And this was one that I saw, and I said, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put that in with my message today. I said this, The gospel is that I am so sinful that Jesus had to die for me, yet so loved and valued that Jesus was glad to die for me. This leads to deep humility and deep confidence at the same time. I can't feel superior to anyone, and yet I have nothing to prove to anyone. Why? Because our Father is sovereign. The one we get to call Father is the one who's over all creation, who created everything. Our Father is rich and powerful. Again, jumping up to verse 16. Paul prays that God may grant you according to his riches of his glory to be strengthened with power in our inner being. We don't have time to get into it, but you know he uses the word according to very specifically? Because he could have said from the. He could have said from the riches of his glory, but he said according to the riches of his glory. Now you might be like, well, what's the difference? Let me give you an illustration that might best explain it. For those of you who understand the tithe, the tithe is giving 10% back to God. That, the, the, the word tithe means a tenth. And that means you are giving 10% according to your riches. Now, if you just walked over and you're like, oh, I got some change here, and you just dropped it in our tithe and offering box, that's giving from your riches. And the reason why I tell you that is this. God's riches, once again, are immeasurable and unfathomable, which means according to his riches, he won't stop giving. That is, again, a mind-blowing point. And sticking with verse 16, since I keep jumping towards it, the word grant. What does that mean? That he may grant you. That means he is gracious. And that he wants to give. As a matter of fact, if you look at Luke chapter 11, and Jesus talking about the good gifts that an earthly father may give, but think about how much better the heavenly father gives, that's what he's talking about here. Now, I've mentioned verse 16 now a handful of times, so let's just go through it, and we're going to read through verse 19. Because this is what Paul is praying on our behalf. And this is what I want you to see as we dive into it. Paul does not pray for the Ephesians to have a comfortable life. He does not pray for things to get easier, and he doesn't pray for material things, even though he knows the Ephesians are in a pretty bad physical situation by being followers of Christ and hated by the community. What's he pray for? He prays for spiritual power of the inner being. He prays for it to be based on the unlimited and measurable riches of God's glory. And I'm not saying any of the other things are bad, but Paul was much more concerned with the eternal than he was with the temporal. So this is what it says in verse 16. I pray that he may grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power in your inner being through his spirit and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you being rooted and firmly established in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width, the height and the depth of God's love and to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Let's quickly break down Paul's petition and you're gonna see there are actually steps that lead to the next one. So he starts off with 
power through the Holy Spirit in our inner being. He's praying that we become like Christ in our hearts, in our minds, and in our will. We need to see things from God's spiritual perspective rather than our fleshly perspective. And guess what? The only way to do that is through the strength of the inner being by the Spirit because we're not going to do it on our own. That is how we say, God, thy will be done, not mine. I want you to do what you have to do through me and not in my own strength. Why does our inner being need to be strengthened? Well, first of all, we all need to grow. Anybody in here reach completion yet? Hit perfection? I'm far from it. If you don't believe me, just ask my kids. None of us have reached it. God saved us on purpose for a purpose. And that purpose wasn't just to get us out of hell. That's one of them. But there's so much more to it than that. Our growth is for his glory. Second reason why we need power and strengthen of our inner being. If you read the end of this book, I know some of you probably don't read to the end. You're waiting for me to get there. But if you decide to read to the end of the book, you're going to see there's like this thing called a spiritual battle that's taking place. And it's not against flesh and blood. It's against some wicked demon junk behind the scenes. And as we look at that and as we think about that, there is a main adversary, his name, or at least he's called Satan. That actually means adversary. It says in 1 Peter that that adversary is prowling around like a roaring lion, waiting for some weakened wildebeest to devour. How are we not that weakened wildebeest? Because we have inner strength of our inner being because of the spirit who is in us. Third thing is, is you know what? We've been trusted with some tasks. Matthew 28, 19, and 20. It's what we call the Great Commission. We use it often. It's part of the reason why we have the sign over here that we do. It's based off the Great Commission. But it says what? It says go and make disciples, right? We can't make disciples on our own. It says teach them everything that Christ has commanded. Does anybody know everything that Christ has commanded? Can't do that on our own. It says to baptize them and immerse them in A, the water, as well as B, God. How do we do that? We can't do it on our own, far beyond anything we could do. So we pray for inner strength. Well, that inner strength leads to the second step of the prayer, and that is Christ dwelling in our hearts by faith. And you may ask, well, wait a second. When I become a Christian, I was told that Jesus comes into my heart. So, so why would he say that Christ would or pray that Christ would dwell in our hearts by faith? Because it's in the wording. And in the wording here, it goes just further than just Jesus being inside the front door. It means that Jesus is going to dwell or make himself at home. He is going to take over all the rooms. He is going to be the one that is on the throne of your heart. I want you to picture it this way. I don't know how long you've lived in your house for. But I was actually looking around our house the other day. We've lived in it for now almost seven years. And I was looking at all the things that have changed since we've been there. All the things that we did to what? Make it our own. Well, guess what? When Christ comes in and he dwells, he's going to make it his own. And think of all the changes that he's done in you and will continue to do in you. That's what Paul is praying for. And again, we need that because we can't do it on our own. How's it happen? Because Christ and the Spirit and the inner strength. 
Third, he says, I want you to be firmly rooted and established in love. What does it mean to be rooted? Any people that work with plants, I think that's a botanist. I'm not going to butcher it, hopefully. What, what do the roots do? They A, nourish the plant, and they B, keep it from getting blown over in a huge storm, right? It gives it strength. And when we're, we're rooted in anything, it's going to feed us that thing. He says, I want you to be rooted in love. And not just rooted, he also says established. That means I want you to build your foundation on this love. You can go to the end of the Sermon on the Mount and see about what Jesus says about foundations and the foundation we need to build our life on. It's on him who is love. And we are rooted and we are established in that. This is not our love. This is not our love for each other or even our love for Christ. Both are great things to pray for, by the way, that they grow. But this is the focus part where he says, I want you to understand Christ's love for us. I want your mind to truly be blown and realize how much we are loved. And then I want you to root your life into that. That it doesn't blow you over when the storms come. That that nourishes you. That that is your foundation. And then it opens your eyes to the desire to live the crucified life that he has called us to. As a matter of fact, I told you people sometimes use verses we say out of context. Philippians 4.13 is one of them. Galatians 2.20 is another one. I want you to hear what Paul says, and I want you to see the highlighted thing, and it would have been highlighted on the wall, I promise. I've been crucified with Christ, he said, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God. These next words are the important ones. Who loved me and gave himself for me. He is rooted in that love. He is established in that love to be able to say, I can live the crucified life. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. We'll be talking about those in a couple of weeks. Listen to what it says. Therefore, be imitators of God as dearly loved children and walk in love as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. What drives our desire to be imitators of God? We are rooted in love and established in love. That drives it. And that's why Paul prays next that we comprehend the greatness of, of God's love. Paul uses some big words here when he says that you may be able to comprehend with all the saints what's the length and width, height, and depth of God's love. Now the funny thing is, is one of the commentaries that I was reading actually said Paul's description of these words are almost difficult to even grasp in the Greek that he wrote. Because the words that he uses, kind of like if you ever talk to a kid and you say, hey, how much does that cost? And they're like, well, that's like a gazillion dollars. Well, how much is a gazillion? I don't know, but it's probably a lot, right? I'm going to guess it's way more than a million, way more than a billion, way more than a trillion. It's a gazillion. So when you think about that, that's kind of what Paul is doing here. He's using words like gazillion. He's saying, how much is that? I don't know, but it's a lot. That height and depth and width and breadth, all of that all... You can't comprehend it, but I'm praying that you do. I'm praying that you grasp it. And we can't do it on our own. We can't see all the angles of God's love, but by the power of the Spirit working in us, we can realize it's a lot, and we can respond appropriately. We can understand it's enough to change us and transform us into who God wants us to be, and we should live accordingly. Fifth, he prays that we may know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge. Now, that's a weird statement to me. I want you to know something that surpasses knowledge. How do you do that? 
How do you know something that's beyond knowing? Well, it says here, in the power of the Spirit, that we will begin to strive to know Jesus more and more. And that we'll know His love more and more. And it really should be our prayer for each other and for ourselves. Going back to another old youth worship song, I want to know you more. Most of you didn't even know that that was Hillsong before Hillsong was Hillsong. I want to know you. I want to see your face. I want to know you more. I want to touch you. I want to feel your love. I, I want all of that. I want more of it. That should be our prayer. And that happens because the Spirit's working in us and dwelling in us. And these are the steps. These are the steps that lead to that last one, that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. Filled with all the fullness of God. All of these blessings being poured out according to the riches of God's glory result in us being filled with all the fullness of God. Not that we can attain all that God is. We're not going to be like little gods walking around. But he can fill us to as much as we have until it is causing us to truly live out all that we're called to be. And all that we are called to do and, and all desires of ours will be his. On Thursday, we did our third Thursday and we actually prayed through this passage. And we pray we so, be so full that we just ooze God. That every step that we took would just ooze God. And Johnny made it sappy. He actually talked about sap of a tree. Because that's the only picture he could think of was oozing sap out. And has anybody ever put their hand in sap? And does it just stick with you for a while? And then, like... I reach down and I pick this up and I'm like, oh, hey, you know, that whole everything. What if that was us? That we just affected everything that was around us. That what was oozing from us affected everyone around us. What a great illustration. When we begin to understand all that God is and all that he's done, there's nothing left to do but praise. Paul's captivated by Jesus. He's hooked on Jesus. There's nothing else. That's where Paul is at, and that's why he ends this part of the letter with these two verses. It's called the doxology. Now to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that's work within us, to him be the glory in the church in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. In this prayer of praise, Paul is showing us the greatness of God. He's showing us the greatness of God, and he says, God is able god is able able to do what you might ask well above all that we ask and not just above but above and beyond all that we ask and not just above and above beyond all we ask above and beyond all that we ask or even think do you grasp that yeah neither do i because that's insane the words that he's using there. But here's a place to start. Do you believe that God is sovereign and in control? Do you believe that God raised Jesus from the dead and placed him at the head of the church and put all other things under his feet? Because that is the, the starting point for Christianity. If so, then go to him and pour out your everything to him. You know why? Because God is able. But the next question I had is, is how? How is he able? How is God able to go beyond what I ask or even think or even imagine? Because I don't even know what's beyond that. How is he able to do that? 
by the power that is at work within us, it says. I mean, think about all the characters of the Bible. Think about all the ordinary or even less than ordinary people that God uses to do extraordinary things. I mean, the first person I always think about is Gideon, who was just a, described as the least of the least of the least. But yet God used him to do mighty things. How about you? How about you? Do you understand that God is able? Why does God do all these things anyway? Well, the second verse is the same as the first. Same thing we've been talking about, well, forever. It's all for his glory. That's the ultimate answer to prayer for strength in us, that he gets glory. Ultimate answer to prayer for him, us being rooted and established in love, that he gets the glory. glory. And for how long? Forever and ever. What movie pops in your mind immediately when you think that? Sandlot, of course. Forever. Forever. That's where we're at. Forever and ever, amen. My challenge to each of you is this. My challenge to each of you is this. God can do so much more in us than we could ever ask or imagine. Let's lean into him and trust him more and more and see how he glorifies himself in us and through us. This week, kneel before God. Humble yourself in the sight of him. Ask God to reveal to you, your family and your church, more of his greatness, more of who he is. Ask him to fill you with his fullness. Ask him to show you the power of his glory. Ask him to reveal the fullness of his love and understand just a little bit more of his greatness and his glory. Reflect on God. There's so much to discover when it comes to God. If we just look. I thought about this. I was born in the 70s, and there was a discussion we had this, this week um, because somebody had asked the question, why do they use the term, hang up the phone? There's a generation that's never actually hung a phone up before. Why do they use the word, hang up the phone? And I began to think about this. If you took somebody from the 50s, 60s, 70s, even 80s, and brought them here and you handed them an iPhone. My guess is they would look at it and be like, what is this? Like, no cords? Nothing? I can walk around and talk on this. Yes, you were right, but if you know anything about the iPhone, you can do so much more. Sometimes I think we see God and forget that he can do so much more that we have him in our hearts and in our lives, strengthening our inner being, and he can do so much more, but yet we refuse to ask. And I challenge you today to reflect on him and get to know God better. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for who you are and thank you for what you continue to do. Thank you for the challenge this morning, not just to the graduates as they take their next steps, but God, to each and every single one of us as we take our next steps to know you more because you are able. It's not just a song that we sing. It's a belief that we hold on to. God, may you have the glory. We pray it in your name. Amen.